0: Fam, it's your boy Z Dog MD, and I, <laughs> I got I got a real doctor here, not just a real doctor, but a professor of medicine and endocrinology at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, some kind of fancy pants clinic that uh, is, is a specialist in obesity and is going to share his knowledge with us. He's done amazing things. Sits on the
1: national panel for recommendations for evaluation management of obesity. In other
0: words, the government
1: telling you, you're fat,
0: Dr. Michael <laughs> Jensen. Thank you.
1: Good to see you, man. Good to
0: see you. You're in town for what sounded to me like the most boring conference I've ever heard of, the uh, American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Yeah. Is it really boring, or?
1: It, you, it's, you have to have a taste for it. <laughs> Once you have the taste for it, it's no longer boring.
0: I'm gonna be honest with you, Mike. I have a taste for TPN that cannot be sated. I used to call it total parenteral nougat when I was a you know, resident and nobody got it at all. They were like, I don't understand what you're saying, especially the pharmacist. Um, but you're, so you, you got into obesity as a sort of subspecialty in your endocrine field. Why were you interested in that?
1: You know, it, it's hard to know because I thought when I was a medicine resident that there was probably nothing more boring than <laughs> diabetes. And then I got to be an endocrinology fellow and I thought, oh, there can't be anything more boring than obesity. But then my division chair said, you know, really, if you don't know a lot about it, everything is boring. You you need to learn about it. And I think you'll find that it's interesting. And he said, the other thing is, it's a really common problem that nobody knows how to deal with. This is 1984, 85. And he goes, if you want to contribute, find a common problem that nobody knows much about, and just study it as best you can.
0: And that's obesity. And that was obesity in
1: 1985.
0: This idea of like, uh, stuff being interesting when you learn more about it. So Tom is really fascinated by Bitcoin and knows a lot about it, and I'm bored to tears by it. (laughs) Tom tried to teach me about it and I'm still bored to tears by it. So the more you learned about obesity though, the more you went down a rabbit hole that became kind of your life's work. I mean, what's your subspecialty in obesity?
1: So I'm trying to understand why fat tissue in some people causes you to be gravely ill, and in other people, they seem to live in harmony with a lot of extra fat for 90 years. And we just we think we're getting closer to understanding why that is, but it's still kind of a mystery and it has huge treatment implications. If you can understand why some people's fat is making the sip and other people's is not, then you open up a whole new possibility of
2: treatment. Would so you consider just from just observation alone? Would you consider Logan a healthy fat or a sickly fat?
1: <laughs> yeah, just just eyeball, just eyeball him, Mike. Like uh, uh, his stomach is hidden behind the desk over yeah. there. I can't really comment.
2: <laughs> I will.
0: I will say this: it's mostly abdominal obesity, and it's high. I'm convinced it's highly inflammatory and metabolically active. But that's just me. I'm uneducated, Mike. Well, so here, here actually, here's a serious question: How can you sort of get a sense of is somebody fit and fat, which is a thing people talk about? Well, no. You know what? Having a little fat might live a little longer. You're protected against certain things like death in some studies that they report in the popular press. Versus, no, having that extra fat in particular places is inflammatory or, or leads to diabetes or other complications that can shorten your life. I mean, how, how do you, how would you distinguish?
1: So that. Easiest way we do it is we can measure people's stomach circumference Mm. and their hip circumference, and that gives you a much better um, predictor of of what the likelihood they're going to have metabolic illness is than just knowing their weight. Mm. Uh, Now, once you get beyond a certain weight, it kind of doesn't matter where you've got it. Because you're you're you're, so big. You're you're so big, your health is going to suffer. Right. But, But for people who are just in the low end of the obese range, something like that, just overweight range, um, that knowing what the waist is and what the hips are gives you a lot of additional information about how likely they are to get diabetes, get hypertension, get high lipids, all that stuff.
0: So Trump, who is by far the healthiest president in the history of presidents, is going to live to 473. Uh, even though his weight is high, his doctors have said, well, you know, he's carrying it on a tall frame and he's metabolically looking good. Is that feasible?
1: It's feasible. I mean, you need to know what is triglycerides are, and as glucose is, and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, and when you wear suits like that all the time, you really can't tell where somebody's carrying it. So it is possible that if you work out like crazy, you can carry extra fat and have it not be as damaging as if you're sedentary. The problem is if you work out like crazy, it's hard to maintain that much extra fat, especially if you're a guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So this fat and fit... Partially true, mm. but not completely true. I mean, if, you, if you're really centrally obese, you're still going to have trouble.
0: Yeah. So Winnie the Pooh is screwed because he's fat and he's eating honey. H- how much is sugar and carbohydrates? I mean, this is such a controversial thing. Anytime we talk about it, we get hate on both sides of the aisle because people are emotionally passionate about diet and the metabolic consequences of diet, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, etc. Where do you fall in this whole spectrum? Like are you Mr. Low Carb or High Carb or do you think it's it depends on the patient? So
1: here's what I don't like about sugar, and I especially don't like about sugar sweetened beverages, is if you sit there and you have your burger and fries and a seven hundred calorie giant Coke, you're not gonna eat any less of that burger and fries than if you had water. And so sugar somehow the sugar-sweetened beverages, and doesn't matter whether it's fruit juice or pop or whatever, goes right past the built-in things we had that make us feel full. Yeah. And so essentially, people are getting those extra calories with no additional benefit. No, that They're not feeling that satisfaction yeah. from eating. And so over the course of, you know, a year or five years, you can imagine the huge number of extra calories you're getting mm. because you don't turn down. It's not like you eat 500 calories less of that burger because you had a 500 calorie Coke.
0: Right. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't add value in terms of getting full and stopping you from eating. It's just extra calories. Just extra some, calories. With no other nutritional value. Correct. Unless phosphoric acid is considered uh, a
1: nutritional. Uh, yeah, it deletes calcium right out of your bones.
0: It deletes <laughs> calcium. So you have too much calcium in your bones, which is a common problem these days. <laughs> and by the way, I wanna thank you for being a member of the ZPAC. So ZPAC, you gotta understand something. That a male Clinic professor of medicine and researcher watches our show, okay? Deal with it, Oz. <laughs> He's not watching Dr. Oz, okay? He can't say that because he don't want to be mean to a colleague. I don't consider you a colleague, Oz. Okay, also I'm watching you. And also I watch you because you're handsome. I don't watch you. Or do I? Anyway, so a question that my audience has is, is a calorie a calorie a calorie? So are nine calories from fat the same as nine calories from carbs, the same as nine calories from protein, or does the source of your calories change your metabolism in a way that can promote disease and obesity depending on the source?
1: Um, A calorie is a calorie in terms of what your body can do with it for energy, but uh, in terms of preferential use, if you're getting your calories from protein, it's most likely to be used to Replace proteins that you're losing for for just that natural turnover of body protein. Mm. Um, All things being equal, if you're in a nutritionally balanced state, fat and carbohydrate are virtually equal because your body is great at burning both of those things. And Mm -hmm. if you get more, you take in more sugar, it will tend to burn more sugar. Mm. If you take in less sugar, it'll burn more fat. And so most of us are pretty good at, at that shift back and forth between fat, sugar, fat, sugar, fat, sugar. We do that all day, every day.
0: Right. So as an endocrinologist, and you also deal with lipid disorders and things like that, what's your take on sort of uh, some people's arguments that it, our lipid disorders, low trigly- or high triglycerides, metabolic syndrome, are less about saturated fat and more about refined
1: carbohydrates? Oh, I mean, there, well, there's a huge genetic Background to this, so so what? How you respond to food is driven a lot by your genes in that area, <clears throat> and it's partially driven by whether you're overweight or not. Huh. So uh, it, it is true that if you feed people a lot of carbohydrate you will raise uh, there is a large group of people that if you they eat too much carb even if they don't gain weight it'll raise their triglycerides uh-huh. um, but there's a group of people that 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 group of people that tends to be lower body obese that if they eat a lot of carb their triglycerides don't budge
0: so you're talking about lower body meaning hips hips butt, and thighs hips and thighs not belly
1: not belly if you if the people with a big belly switch from uh, sort of a modest f- carbohydrate to a high-carbohydrate diet, you'll drive up their triglycerides. Yeah.
0: So there's something about your Even if they don't gain weight. Right. So here's a question. Could it be that it's that genetic subtype that, that actually promotes the deposition of fat in the specific locations that are more harmful? And it's that same group that would have a triglyceride rise with carbohydrates? Th- that... We, we
1: don't know that. I, I mean, it's... There is definitely something about the characteristics of people's fat cells and your ability to make new fat cells or to be resistant to making new fat cells, in, a, in healthy new fat cells, that seems to underlie a lot of the stuff that we're finding. Um, and there's some really good investigators understanding it at, at the real basic level, why is this person's fat cell different than this person's fat cell? Yeah. And, and we tend to be looking at the precursors to fat cells mm. that will become your new fat cells.
0: In other words, uh, Logan's Big Mac. <clears throat> because that's the most common precursor to fat cells. That, uh, so, so, well, this is interesting. So, all fat cells are not created equal. Not there's, at all. There's healthy fat cells and unhealthy fat cells. And then there's brown fat cells, which the babies have. Yeah. Some adults have, too, right?
1: They do, there's not much. Not
0: much? So. I have a lot. Being Indian, all my fat is brown. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so here's, a, here's a question. You have two different types of fat and you, part of your research is trying to figure out, okay, what are you trying to tease out between the two?
1: We're trying to figure out why some fat cells just do not turn off when they should turn off. So, so fat is, is, I mean, if we didn't have fat cells, you'd die every time you eat a high fat meal because you couldn't get rid of it, it'd build up in the bloodstream, you'd get you, pancreas inflammation and die. Uh. Um, but fat cells do a great job of just sucking up fat that you have in your diet and turning off the release because mm. uh, you don't need it. And then when, you, when you've digested that food, now it's been five hours at your ate, now they're sending fat back out. Um, and there are some people, and it's the people who gain weight here, where they're not that good mm-hmm. at sucking up that fat, mm-hmm. and they're really not that good at stopping it from coming out. And so there's something fundamentally going wrong right. with those cells. But,
0: but, but here's a question. So there's been a shift in our population in where people are storing fat in terms of some of the data that you've seen. Uh, tell us about that and why that might be.
1: So, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, um, there was sort of a population. It was There's this... Range of where we store fat, and it was pretty evenly distributed from people who would store it mostly in the hips and thighs versus people who stored it just predominantly in the abdominal area. Mm -hmm. And over 30 or 40 years, when we look at these broad population surveys where they measure people's waist and they measure their hip, there's been a trend towards more, a higher percentage of the population storing it in the abdominal area. And there's really no good explanation for why that would occur. The best guesses are the things that have changed over the last 30, 40 years is um, we're more sedentary Mm -hmm. and maybe the shift in, uh, as you kind of alluded to, maybe it's too much carbohydrate. That's what some people think. There's really not great evidence on any way to say why this is happening.
0: We don't know, in other words. And and, and one thing we do know, it's not not genetic drift. In other words, our genes are the same. Correct. Yeah, so that's one thing we can hold constant. It's something in our environment that's changed. Similar to like, why are we seeing more allergies? You know, there's a lot of environmental components. Uh, Now, I think where that breaks down is people saying, well, we're seeing more autism. We're probably diagnosing autism more. So that's where we have to be very careful about environmental triggers and things like that. Um, one of the questions I would have, too, and, um, is really, the, you, okay, you actually clinically see patients who are obese and you try to help them lose weight. If I were coming in, let's say Logan's coming in and he's moderately obese, how would you start working him up and deciding what's a plan for him? Is there a one-size-fits-all, like in the movie What the Health, they want everyone to be on a vegan diet and that will cure everything that ails us. Is that the answer or what, what do you think about this?
1: <clears throat> so from the diet perspective, I, I was actually on the panel that did the national guidelines for obesity. Oh wow. And So, so you're
0: paid off by Monsanto.
1: Uh, by the, nation, by the government.
0: <laughs> oh, which is basically just big Monsanto as far as I'm concerned. <laughs>
1: so, so essentially what we looked at is all the studies that compared every diet, vegetarian, uh, Mediterranean, you name it, there, there's been studies on it. You get, if you look at the responses, it's exactly the same. The mean weight loss is the same no matter what diet. Now what we don't know is maybe it's because there's a proportion of people that do really well on a low-fat diet. But it's, a, it's always a sum proportion, and so it sort of depends upon your ability to stick with that over the long run, to change eating habits over the long run. And some people maybe just hate low-fat diets, and other people hate low-carb diets. Mm-hmm. And so if they're telling them to do that, they're, they're gonna fail. And so what we try to do is is go with what we think is the most reasonable approach, but then not give up if people can't do it with one and another is to, to be willing to, to be flexible until you find something that people they, they like and they can stick with and they're losing the weight they wanna lose.
0: Right, right, right. So it <clears> seems <throat> like if you're gonna look at evidence and trials, it seems like the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet seem to have the most suggestive evidence and none of these trials are great, but am I wrong to think that they have the most suggestive evidence to be the Best benefits for say cardiac risk. Yeah. BCD. So in
1: terms of, of improvements in in uh, the predictors of cardiac the lipids and stuff mm. like that, the Dash and the Mediterranean are are definitely uh, have the more positive effects on lipids. Right. 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 Uh,
0: and here's a question. So the biggest loser, this show on TV. Uh, oh
2: my God, I love that show, Z. That's my favorite show. Tom watches a lot of TV
0: like an unusually high amount, and then he tells me about it. He's like, Z, 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 you guys should show The Biggest Losers. These guys are really big, and then they get small, but then they gain all the weight back.
2: Yeah. And here's the question, these Plus, guys lose. I have a crush on Jillian Michaels, but then I found out she was a lesbian, so. <laughs> <laughs> Hope's that.
0: So, Jillian Michaels aside. <laughs> These uh, pa- these patients, these contestants on The Biggest Loser, lose a lot of weight. We're very quickly in these sort of boot camp conditions, and then they find, uh, looking and follow up, that they gain it back and more. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanism there? What's going on?
1: <clears throat> so there's there's two thoughts. One of them is that you, we just have this point that we're set at, right? So that that you can take somebody, you can make them gain weight, you can make them lose weight, and they eventually kind of end up back where they started. Yeah. And it's the one thought is this biological, that yes. there's something that changes. Uh, my take on it is <clears throat> it's a set point. It's the set point between you and your environment. Mm. So if you look at, for example, if you look at uh, people exact same age, sex, everything else, who stay in the military yeah. versus who retire from the military, who gains weight. The retirees. The retirees. Even though they're, they're aging at the same rate, they're doing everything else at the same rate. A lot of the, the explanations of saying, oh, it's a set point. What's well, a set point if you're living in the same place, doing the same work, eating the same food? Of course you're gonna weigh the same. Yeah. Or you're gonna gain as yeah. we get older. But but this idea that there, you're, you're forced biologically, everybody's forced to do this, just can't, there's too many exceptions to that rule. For me to believe it's an absolute rule
0: right so so let me unpack that a little bit more so what you're saying is it's our it's the interaction between our own biology and our environment that leads to our ultimate weight and one of those things is malleable your environment in terms of what you do your exercise what you put in your body those kind of things the other thing may may be malleable with medications or future therapy but is not necessarily malleable off the bat. So the thing you can control, you should try to control to the best effect to optimize for you. Which again comes back to this, there's no one size fits all approach for obesity.
1: And, And that's why when we actually work with people who wanna lose weight, one of the things we say, are you willing to look at your environment to look at the triggers and cues and what's, what's you know, why do you never go to the gym when you said you're gonna to go to the gym? Why are you always snacking in front of the TV when you said you're never gonna snack? You have to understand a lot of the choices you ha- are, can make are only what's there. Yeah. If you can change your choices by changing your environment, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier.
0: Okay, so now I wanna kick this into overdrive because you're triggering these uh, uh, questions that I've had for a long time that are I'm quite passionate about. You had, you had mentioned something about the environment uh, sort of helping you make choices. Do we have willpower? Is that a thing?
1: We do, yeah. No, absolutely we do.
0: Okay, how so? Like, are we in control of our, our choices, or is it entirely environmental influences that cause us to make these
1: choices? So, a lot of people don't recognize what it is in the environment that is driving their choices. Once you recognize what that, that factor is, you can take steps to get rid of that. I would call that free will, right? Yeah. It's, it's your willpower. I mean, if, if I could invent a willpower pill, then I'd be rich. Sure. But what I tell people is, why do you want to fight this willpower thing every day when, if you can just learn what it is that's driving your behavior and make changes so that it's easier for you to just do what you say you want to do, then why not do it that way? Why fight the willpower bear every day?
0: <laughs> and I'm, I'm in full agreement. I think that willpower is this idea of, of overcoming our elephant, our unconscious sort of conditioning. Why is the elephant the way it is? It's been conditioned by environment, by, by education, by belief, somewhat by genetics, by biology. Don't mess with it. It's big. Okay, respect it. So change your the change path, the path. Change the path mm. that you're walking on and don't overwhelm the little guy on top who thinks he's in control of the of the elephant. If you give him a lot of data, he's going to be paralyzed. He's going to take the easy way out and listen to his elephant and have a chocolate bar or grab that, you know, high carb meal that's available here with the, all the processed sugar or the high fat, you know, McDonald's burger whatever it is. So if we can actually change the education process, the environment, the triggers, uniquely for each person, ideally, right. but as a society right. as a whole, and, this, and then people will get into this nanny state idea. Well, you took the
1: well, sugar I, out of our- But I mean, you know, it, obesity is a public health problem, mm-hmm. and you're not gonna solve this, this problem for the US by going to the doctor. Right? There are just A, not enough doctors who know about it, And even if there were, it would be horrifically expensive. Right. So why not develop some rational public health approaches and that help people understand this problem? It's important, and then the benefits of being physically active and more moderation in diet. I mean, we 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 did this for smoking. Yeah. Right. We had a a nice public health thing, and the smoking rates went way down. Yeah. So now Tom just vapes. We did it for Mm. for seatbelts. Way doper. <laughs> we did it for seatbelts. You're right. Yeah, and, and nobody called it a nanny state. <laughs> Some people, well, they did. Some people did. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to die in a car crash because I can't get because I can't get out. Gonna, the car's going to be on fire. I can't get out. Yep. You know,
0: just like vaccines, we have a public health campaign that gets everybody vaccinated. We have herd immunity. It's good for everybody. But you know, something about diet. There's a religion around diet, right? Well, you, what's the most common resistance you face when a patient comes in and you're trying to look at their situation?
1: so the most common question i'm going to ask is they want to say i want to lose weight yeah and i would say okay are are you willing to change your eating and activity habits in order to accomplish this over the long run mm-hmm. are, you, are you willing to make permanent changes in eating and activity if it will help you with your weight mm. and if they said no i just want a pill <laughs> yeah then you kind of know you things are probably not gonna go that well.
0: Right, well here's the thing, are they not gonna go well, so do we not have a pill that can cure obesity or make people skinny?
1: The, we don't. We don't.
2: Tapeworm Z.
0: <laughs> you know what, that's probably the most medical thing Logan has ever said on the show. <laughs> He's absolutely
1: right, what a tapeworm.
2: Do you, what do you think about Ray Kurzweil's idea that we're gonna have like sort of nano-robotic sleeves that sort of just pass food through us in the future? <laughs> Well, you know,
1: there are operations that try to do that. So that was and, the and, and sometimes people do really well with it. Uh, but I'll tell you that most of my patients who do really well, they get religion. Yeah. You know, so so they see this change and they don't want to let it go. And, and they will do whatever it takes to... Sick to keep that accomplishment, but I have almost as many patients who say no, this is gonna do it for me I can just keep doing what I want to do Um, and they end up in trouble They uh. end up either with nutritional problems or they gain back all their weight and Mm. So I mean as of yet we do not have anything so Powerful that some of my patients haven't found a way to get around it
0: (laughs) methamphetamines Smoking meth?
1: Well, the good thing is that you'll probably, any weight you lose, you'll probably never regain because you you might die.
0: Oh! (laughs) Death is the best form of weight loss. That is the final comment. At least yeah. you don't
1: regain you the weight. You don't
0: regain the weight. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, so I mean, this is interesting. So gastric bypass, gastric sleeve, those kind of things. Have they gotten safer over the course of your career, do you think?
1: Yeah, they're, they're better. They, we do them now with the laparoscopes, so yep. you don't have the big hernias afterwards. The actual effectiveness probably isn't any better, but they're safer. The risks are lower. People are out of the hospital sooner. Um, That's if you go to a good center. If you go to some of the, you know, fly-by-night places, those are the people that end up at Mayo Clinic, hospitalized for months because things did not go well.
0: So you get what we used to call the G-B-G-B patients. Gastric bypass gone bad. And we would see them in the in the nineties and early two thousands, and they would come to tertiary centers like Stanford, yep, yep, Mayo, yep. and they would. We, I would consult as the medicine team, and just be like, "Oh my gosh,
1: leaks and fistula." Peri nutrition for months on TPN, end. For,
0: and you're an expert in TPN. You, you're managing the inpatient service there. And what would you want to tell people? Like, is a takeaway like the most important thing you've kind of learned in all of this in your career, which has been long and illustrious in managing obesity?
1: So people are not going to lose weight if they don't change their eating habits. They're probably going to regain that weight if they don't change their activity habits. Interesting. So yeah. so diet change will is very good at helping people lose weight. Yeah. But if that's all you do, you have a 90 plus percent chance of regaining all that weight back. People who change their diet, and then become intentionally more physically active, or they're forced to because of their job or whatever, are much more likely to keep that weight off for the long run because now it doesn't matter that you're 40 pounds less. You're burning the same number of calories when you were 40 pounds heavier, and that's sort of what the body's trying to do is say, well, I'm used to burning 3,000 calories a day. You lose weight, now I'm only burning 2,500. I want to go back to 3,000. Yeah. And, and so the only way you can go back to that is regain that weight or do 500 calories of extra activity throughout the day, walking whatever your, need, whatever your trick is. But, and,
0: and, and so that's a key point is, like, you can lose the weight with diet, but then you're not going to keep it off without changing your activity level. Mm-hmm. And that can be as simple as walking, like you said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be, you know, CrossFit and, you know, whatever it is that Tom does that hurts his back every time he does it. Deadlifts, bro. <laughs> <time. laughs>
2: what did you say, Logan? Deadlifts. <laughs> what, what, what do you think about activity uh, trackers like like the Fitbit and the Apple Watch, th- those kinds of things?
1: So, those have been a real boon for us in terms of uh, understanding what the people who we're working with are actually doing. Mm-hmm. You know, before we had this, Every single person I saw walked at least five miles a day. Yeah. You know, I'd say, well, like, are, are you, oh yeah, you know, I'm this, I, I do a lot of walking. Now that we've got our phones it, <laughs> FitBits doing everything, I say, well, let's just take a look. Oh, oh, 3,000 steps a day. That's uh, not so much. Yeah. So you're it's holding people so accountable. So I'm actually what I try to do is help them hold themselves accountable. Ah. Because if you're just accountable to me, it's easy to say, oh, I'm just not gonna go see him again. Right. But if you're accountable to yourself, if you set your own goals, Right. Uh, then it's much easier to to stick with that.
0: Got it. So you don't see it as a quit bit. People they don't just throw it away after a while.
1: Some people do. Yeah. You know, so it, for some people it's a gimmick. Um, yeah. Others will check it like every night. Yeah. And what I tell them is, don't wait till nighttime. It's too late then. Yeah. If you're if you're not on track, you better know it by lunchtime. <laughs> yeah. If if your goal is ten thousand steps and you're at two thousand. Yeah. Do something that afternoon. So
0: what do you think of these people who are slinging like tea and supplements and things like that for weight loss? Any of it work or is it all BS?
1: It's, a gimmick, right? Yeah. And sometimes people do well with gimmicks, most of the time they don't. Is if it a it, placebo
0: it, gimmick? I mean, it is probably
1: is. Yeah. You know, if and if it doesn't cost a lot and it helps you, I'm not gonna make a big stink about it. Right. But if it's risky, dangerous, costly, then I'd say, you know, we really need to rethink this. Tapeworms. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Tapeworms. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, there are a half a dozen medications now that are out there. Yeah. None of them are very effective on their own. But There is a better acceptance now that in the right person who's making all the efforts and needs a little bit of extra help, that we're seeing some benefit from those. Whereas if you're just sitting in the office writing prescriptions, there's probably no benefit. No benefit.
0: That's a key component. You have to have the motivation. You know what? I I find I've been trying to meditate a lot lately, which is a hard thing to do because the hardest part of it is setting a conscious intention before you sit down that this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna spend an hour paying attention to my breath and, that's what I, and I'm doing it for these reasons. But if you don't set that intention and you sit down, I'm gonna meditate, it devolves into daydreaming
1: oh, and exactly.
0: wasting yeah. your time. Yep. The same sounds like it's true in any endeavor that involves, quote unquote, conscious willpower and that includes weight loss. If you don't have a strong intention, motivation, you're not gonna succeed. So the pills might help you, it sounds like, if you have that intention and you have support, but if you're just taking it and you think it's a magic cure like everyone in America, um, you're gonna fail. Fair enough yep. to say? Yep. Yeah.
2: Um, but this is America, damn it. Where's the? I want a pill. I yeah. wanna eat McFlurries and take a pill and be skinny. <laughs> Isn't that what you guys do?
1: Can you help Tom Heineber? Uh, if I could, I would be able to buy the Mayo Clinic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, I tell you. It's just, it's just the cost of buying Epic alone is going to kill you. Here's a, here's a question. Tom is the biggest loser, and not of weight. Doc, uh, bottom line,
2: <laughs> bottom line, i got to ask it. How many times a day should we eat Chipotle? Two, <laughs> three, four? What, what's your advice, Doc? Uh, do
1: you have a Chipotle deficiency? You might, you might need to go to like eight. <laughs> I
2: Here's a question. Can a medical you... <laughs> doctor from the Mayo Clinic just told me that people, you all saw it. You all saw it. Well, you don't understand. Professor of medicine.
0: He he's a professor of medicine, but he's also he also is in uh, Big Chipotle's pocket <laughs> uh, because
1: try, try, hurry, I need to buy some
0: stock. You go buy him. some stock because total perennial Chipotle or TPC <laughs> is something that we often offer for especially for our uh, pancreatitis patients because you need to feed them early and often, and a high Chipotle uh, perennial. Feed.
1: You know they changed that to CPN, central parental nutrition, but we could call it Chipotle parental nutrition.
0: Oh wow! Chipotle parental nutrition. Wait a minute, did they really change it to CPN? Yeah. It's not TPN. Anymore?
1: Not anymore. In the hospital, it's, no. it's, beca- it's because we still try to get people to eat, so it's not total. Oh. So we, we call it central because it has to go in you the know central what? vein. So you guys, we're, and we're trying to make it really difficult to, to keep the field. <laughs> what I like to
2: do is
0: I like to I like to use the lingo that's about roughly seven years out of, out of date, date. No matter what, TPN. TPN. Yeah, yeah go. For so it. I'm a roll with TPN. <laughs> exactly. I'm still using the dsm 4 What's the best part about working at an integrated academic place like Mayo?
1: So the best thing is it doesn't matter how difficult a patient I've got, how rare their condition. I can call for help and there's somebody there who's the world expert in that and they're gonna make me look good.
0: That's dope. And of course they're
1: calling you, too. They're saying, hey, we need- Is this patient obese or not? (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need a diagnostic (laughs) help. (laughs) This patient's 700 pounds. Obese? (laughs) Wow! (laughs) let me do a formal yeah, consult. Fortunately,
1: my diagnosis isn't so difficult. It's the treatment part that gets to be the <laughs> That's challenge. where it's hard. And here's, here's actually another question about a,
0: a group like Mayo, because you guys are actually on the forefront, salaried physicians. Yes. There's no incentive for you to do stuff to people. Correct. Does that work in real
1: life? For the most part, it does. So yeah. for example, our uh, surgeons are not going to operate on somebody that doesn't need it just because they'll get paid, because they get paid the same no matter what. So, so they they feel completely comfortable saying, no, you do not need an operation for this. And it's the same thing with most of the other, you know, for those of us who do thinking specialties, it doesn't really affect us. Right. But for people who are doing things two people yeah. it affects them because you can always convince yourself well you know maybe i really don't know maybe i really shouldn't do this test yeah. Uh, yeah and by the way it doesn't hurt that i get paid money to do that test whereas if you're get paid the same no matter what it's what's in the patient's best interest yeah i'm
0: actually a big believer in that we did that at turntable everybody was salaried it wasn't about rvus or generating productivity um, how has the ehr affected your practice
1: it's, there's been some good things and some bad things. Mm. Uh, when I started at Mayo, it was all paper records. Mm. You could wait four hours for that record to mm. show up from their previous appointment, and in the meantime, nothing is happening. Right. Then you'd wait another three hours to get their X-rays up. Yeah. Now you know, that I, I, the patient walks in, everything is there. Yeah. It's completely ready. Yeah. It, it, it makes it so much better. And plus I can pull information in from all over the place now.
0: Are you too siloed though? So do you not talk to your colleagues anymore? Is yeah. it all staff messages?
1: That's, that's become a problem. Mm. Again, when I first started, We'd have what we call off the floor. So I'd have somebody that I thought, well, chest pain, I don't, I'm not sure if this is angina. And the cardiologist would come on and see the patient with me and say, Got oh, it. yeah, no, I think this is this because of this. And I learned a lot. Yeah. And plus, I made a lot of friends. Right. And now it's like, send them off, you know, you get back this electronic note and you really don't know. And if you call them, they don't answer and da, da, da. So it's had its positives, but it's also had its negatives in terms of that personal interaction.
0: I found the same thing. It's sort of a health 2.0 trying to evolve into 3.0 and the 3.0 will be when we get back into the room and stop looking at the computer and the computer just automates everything that can be automated. And we can use AI and we can use those adjuncts, but really it's about not just this with our patients, but this with you and me as colleagues. Like I've learned so much sitting here with you, I can't imagine, I hope our audience has as well. But um, you know, I want to thank you deeply for taking time out of your conference schedule, coming here, being a fan of the show, and then actually sharing your wisdom with us on one of the biggest problems public health is facing currently, which is obesity. Thank you, Dr. Michael Jensen.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Doctor. 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 God, I hate you so much, Tom (laughs) Heiberg. How many McFlurries can I eat a day? Twelve.
1: This is what I have to deal with every day, Mike. Are you doing an overfeeding experiment? <laughs>
0: <laughs> these two assholes have been doing an overfeeding experiment since I met them, let me just tell you. And they, and they try to feed me. They're always like, come to lunch, Z. Where are you going? Oh, we're going to Zapato's. We're going to have a big-ass burrito filled with rice.
2: I'm like, ah. Oh. Listen, these guys with their fancy medical talk called an overfeeding experiment. I call it treat yourself. You know what
0: I'm saying? <laughs> we out. Just give
2: me faith, yeah.
0: Yeah. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmdcom forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.